This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to another episode of the College Football Fix Podcast presented by USA Today Sports. I'm Dan Walken. Paul Meyerberg, as always, is here. Paul, you know, in my mind, I had this memory of two Saturdays ago in a game between Michigan and Michigan State. And, you know, I maybe like my mind's not working right. I don't know. It's, you know, that time of year we're all a little bit overworked and tired and fuzzy in our mind. But it occurred to me that, that Michigan State won that football game. Is that right? Uh, I'm going to just take a quick look on the computer here. You're right. I just Googled that. Michigan State won by four points. Um, and that was two weeks ago on Saturday. Right. So Things are easy to forget, you know, yeah. especially when, you, um, when it's your job to remember these things. Um, I guess sometimes these things slide through the cracks. Right. So – Michigan and Michigan State have the same record, apparently, right? They have the same. They both have one loss. They both have one loss. And they played, and Michigan State won the game. So why is Michigan ranked ahead of Michigan State by the College Football Playoff Selection Committee? What are these idiots doing? Hmm. Are they just trying to drum up outrage? I mean, are they trolling? Are they going to go uh, anti-vax here? Are they trolling? I mean, because it makes no sense. Besides, like, like maybe eight seconds after we learned that Michigan State was behind Michigan, we discovered that Oregon was still ahead of Ohio State. So we're valuing head-to-head results here, Dan, but not all of them. We're valuing head-to-head result, parentheses, S, like, Sometimes, Multiple, sometimes, not always. Multiple. So I don't really know what to make of it, except to say that maybe. I mean, I guess there is a chance that there was some confusion over Michigan and Michigan State, and some people thought they were picking Michigan State or Michigan. I just, I, I'm trying to find a rationale for why that would be. The good news, as you've written fairly recently, who cares? Yeah, it doesn't even matter. It's all for television. And you know what? I'm just pissed off anyway because I had to sit and watch some crappy college basketball last night. Once a year, these jabronis make me watch a bad basketball game involving two bad teams full of amateur athletes, unimaginative zone offenses, <laughs> press defenses, guys slapping the court like they're Bobby Hurley. I'm just tired of that nonsense. So how, anyway, how I was in a you? bad mood already at 9.35. I just think that's the, the, the worst sport on the planet college basketball i mean how dare no, you i mean there are worse sports on the planet it's the it's the worst of the college sports landscape men's college basketball it's so dull so we had to watch that game then you're waiting it's like 9 30 on the east coast yeah for, you know, for those just in a bad place mentally for, anyway and it seems, seems like it's carrying over uh, several hours later for those who uh, maybe are not following this conversation just to lay it out very very clearly the college football playoff selection committee released It's second weekly rankings on Tuesday. They did it in between games of the Champions Classic, which definitely was not cool because, yeah, Kansas-Michigan State, the last four minutes of the game took 25 minutes uh, to wait for the stupid rankings. I have never hated this committee more. I I don't hate the people individually. They're all nice people. I I know a lot of them. 
but the whole concept of what they do and how they do it, I have never hated it more. I have never been less interested. I have never wanted to just throw things at the TV. Throw. I, I've never wanted to just fly to Dallas more and stand outside the door at the Gaylord Hotel where they have these meetings and just like throw tomatoes at these people. Look, if you think Michigan is a better team than Michigan State, totally fine. I get it. We I know it was a head-to-head game. It was a close game. Michigan State won. All kidding aside, I don't think it's crazy to say if they played that game 10 more times on a neutral field that Michigan would win based on the way that game was played. That's not crazy, okay? But this highlights to me everything that's wrong with this stupid weekly ranking thing because, like you said, head-to-head matters here with Ohio State and Oregon, but it doesn't matter here with Michigan, Michigan State. And you sort of just sort of like wonder why that is or or how they come to that conclusion. And I actually think one of the reasons is because they spend too damn long talking about all this crap. Do you know how long it takes at the end of the season to pick the four best teams? Like 10 minutes. It's like a 10-minute conversation. It's it's not that hard. You know, and and I've got people – last night on Twitter who are all upset about Penn state and why Penn state wasn't ranked. All right. And like, sure. Penn state, if you want to put them in the top 25, fine. Like if you don't want to put them in the top 25. Okay. But this committee's job is to pick the four best teams in the country at the end of the season. The fact that you have to sit there and listen to Gary Barta talk about, Oh, we had such a long discussion about Penn state and, it was so hard to figure out what to do with Penn State. What the hell does Penn State have to do with anything right now? Penn State's long gone from this entire conversation. All right? Now, at the end of the year, Penn State could be 9-3, and three, in which case that would be a really good win for whatever team beat Penn State. Or they could be 6-6, six and six, which it would be just, you know, whatever. You don't really pay that much attention to it. We'll find that out at the end of the season. But that doesn't require a 45-minute conversation about the pluses and minuses of Penn State or where the hell they should be ranked. This is about the top four. This is about getting the semifinals right. And you don't need a deep discussion about Penn State to do that. You don't need any of this. You don't need anyone flying to to Dallas every week. You don't need the fancy Gaylord Resort. And uh, you know, I, I did the uh, mock selection show, and they had this incredible catering and you know, little muffins and whatever. Mm. You don't need any of this. And it's just infuriating when this is what they come up with. Michigan over Michigan State with a game that was played just ten days ago. It's ridiculous. My big problem, among other problems, is that every time someone says that they literally, and this is the line, they literally leave their hats at the door, I die inside. Oh, my God. And if you write that or you say that again, I want you to go to prison. Okay? Six months, first offense, one year, two, three strikes, you're out. Life in prison. You came in, no conjugal visits, nothing. You're done. Leavenworth, one hour outside a day. You know what I mean? My basic point is this, Stan. I'm getting tired of the process. I understand that we we rely on it because it helps feed our coverage. Fans like to read about it, and like to get upset about it. Um, I, I don't think anybody likes it. I mean, we've we, talked a, we've talked a lot about the. I don't think anyone likes it. The only people who like it are the teams that are like you know one through four. Like Georgia really likes it, but even Georgia's bored by it. This is emblematic of the of a larger issue and discussion, which is that it, this needs to be reinvented. Not just what you do on Tuesday nights, but how you approach this whole thing. Um, 
and I mean, maybe the 18, 12 team is the fix, but I think this whole thing needs to be looked at again, because I sense that among everyone, that there's just a sense of boredom about this. Um, and that we're like manufacturing a lot of anger about things that are rightfully uh, kind of disgraceful in terms of, you know, if we value the top 25, that they're, I mean, they're wrong, they're off, but I'm just getting tired of the whole process. Like you said, I would like to just do a top four every Tuesday for five minutes at the end of SportsCenter, and then we'll do a big one uh, maybe the week before conference championships and then the Sunday after. I'd be up for that. Yeah, j- just release the top four. If you're going to do it every week, just release the top four. We, we we talk about it. We react to it. We all watch it. But nobody likes this. And, you know, the, one of the things I'm afraid of, and no one's really mentioning this because we don't actually have an agreement yet on how the playoff is going to expand – but actually what I'm afraid of is that when it does expand, this committee stuff is actually going to become even more prevalent because you actually will have some big points of debate about which teams are in that second six, you know, if it goes to 12. And and that is going to get right. contentious, and and it is going to – actually require more thought, I think, and more breaking down of all the teams that could be involved in that. And it's actually, I think, going to take up more of our lives than it does now. And I'm actually a little concerned about that. Now, what is the playoff going to look like if it expands? I don't know. As We haven't gotten too deep into this on the podcast yet, but basically where we're at right now, the SEC is saying it's it's got to be 4 or 12 They don't want eight. And you've got these other leagues, notably, I think, the ACC and the Big Ten. They would kind of prefer eight. I think maybe varying degrees of staunchness about that. But we're at a bit of a stalemate right now with these conference commissioners in terms of what the playoff is going to look like. And, and, you know, they, they say they're running out of time to do this in two years. So that's going to be kind of undergirding this whole thing as we get to the end of the year. Yeah. And the debate between these two teams becomes even more ridiculous and even more frantic if we're at 12, um, just because of the idea that Michigan's ahead right now at eight and one, eight and one, let's say both these teams lose to Ohio state the rest of the way. And all of a sudden Michigan maybe gets into that 12 team field. Michigan state does not despite the same record, despite the head to head result that favors the Spartans. So, yeah, I, I hope, I really hope that they, the, can't blame it on individual people. I don't like think that individual people on the committee are to blame for overall missteps. But I, I, I just think there needs to be some sort of reimagining of how they do it. I don't know what that is, and it's like just kind of off the top of my head, but I just don't like the idea of getting to a point where every game matters even more in November and all these like pairings matter even more right now and they're not being consistent. You know, So we like to have out. We like to be outraged. But I think in this case, there's there's a realistic feeling that there's a mistake here that they should rectify next week. Yeah, and it may get easier because you are going to have a game with Ohio State and Michigan State. And if Michigan State loses, then they'll deserve to be behind Michigan, I guess, uh, because it'll be their second loss. All right. Sure. Let's talk about some other news of the week, which is Nebraska – saying that Scott Frost is getting another year. The contract has been reduced. Scott Frost is giving up money. Basically what's happening is the same thing that happened in Michigan after last season. And it's something that 
you're only really going to get with guys like Jim Harbaugh, who is a alum, a legend of the Michigan football program, Scott Frost, legend of the Nebraska football program, guys who love that school so much and, and are so desperate for the opportunity to win at the highest level at their alma mater that they're actually willing to reduce the amount of money they're going to make, uh, guaranteed money, and put themselves in more peril of getting fired contractually, uh, making it easier for the school to get rid of them, but they get one more year, one more shot to get it right. With Harbaugh, we've seen it work very, very well. Now, the problem with Nebraska is even on Michigan's worst day under Jim Harbaugh, they have not been as bad as Nebraska is under Scott Frost. You wrote about this. What do you make of the decision And is it something that by this time next year will be looked at as the thing that turned around the Nebraska program or just delaying the inevitable? I think in terms of the decision, um, it's like uh, the decision is is choosing between getting punched in the face and then kicked in the groin, right? Like you choose getting punched in the face over getting kicked in the groin, but you still don't like it. Um, that's Nebraska's choice right here. I don't think they had any good option because they're not going to get a good candidate of head coach. They're just not. I mean, USC and LSU are open. TCU is going to get a better coach. TCU is more of a, of, a, of a logical place for a top-tier coach than Nebraska. Um, and, yeah, there's an investment in Frost and a feeling that they need to see this through because he is Scott Frost. Um, having said that, I think it's fine choice. I don't have a hard time with it. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, what are you going to do? Who are you going to hire? What are you going to do? Go back to the drawing board again after four losing seasons? I say give him a shot. I mean, he gave up a million dollars a year. He cut his buyout in half. They're going to rebuild the offensive coaching staff. How you feel about what the next year looks like depends on how you feel about what this current team looks like because you're not going to just like have some sort of massive turnaround. If you think this is a team and a program that is competing hard, um, that is fighting till the end, and is undone eventually by the fact that they're mentally weak and they will make mistakes eventually – um, then maybe you know the next year will uh, an off season will yield some sort of mental breakthrough and they'll go seven and five. But I think the issues are deeper than that, and they start with Frost himself, which is a logical thing to think as well. Um, then who cares? You're just rearranging the chairs on the deck, you know. So I don't really know what to think in terms of whether this will work. And the issue with that, Dan, I think, is that there's no precedent for it. There's zero precedent historically, recently, whatever, for a program like this keeping a guy after four straight losing seasons. And then having that guy change his whole staff and then have some sort of success. This never happened before. So it is a fascinating kind of 12 months ahead for the program. I mean, if you're an assistant coach, a well-regarded, in-demand assistant coach, why would you go to Nebraska to work with Scott Frost in a guillotine year? Why? What would be your motivation for doing that? I think that's where they... they Zero. Yeah. Money. That, yeah. But you can get money at a lot of schools. That's the thing. Sure. That's the point. Like, there's no motivation. Like, this is a career killer, potentially. So what you're looking at, I think, for Nebraska is go get a hot shot position coach and give them the reins to call plays. But that's not a solution. That's not what this program needs. This program needs a steady hand because the one thing that they have not gotten from Frost is consistency and reliability from the top. So I don't. I think they're kind of doomed, personally. I think they're doomed. I don't think they're going to just turn it around and flip the script. Um but it will be fun to watch. It's going to be really interesting to watch because if it does work, then, you know, 
not like Michigan because Michigan has just reverted back to who they always have been under Harbaugh. They're a top 15 team. I think it would be fascinating to see it work um, and to see him, you know, kind of justify the fate. I, I'm a little bit pessimistic about that. I mean, I, I just rewind back to 2017 UCF beats Memphis in the AAC championship game in a great game. They're undefeated. They're going to the New Year's Six. They're about to call themselves national champions. And, like, on that day, this was a no-brainer. This was Nebraska pulling the coup of the century to, to get this done. And, you know, I just think back, like, how many mistakes were made between then and now to get to this point? Bill Moose, the athletic director, absolute incompetent boob. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just he was just one of the worst athletic director hires of the last decade. Frost not realizing that you just can't bring your whole UCF staff with you to Nebraska. It's a totally different job, totally different level of, of recruiting, geography, like the whole thing. And, you know, there were guys he brought with him who had been at UCF for like a decade. And, you know, it's just that's not what anyone in this business would advise a, a head coach to do. You got to give these guys sometimes some guidance about, yeah, they're the head coach and, and they're responsible, but it's part of the athletic director's job, administration's job to, to offer, especially for somebody who's a very young and relatively inexperienced coach, some guidance about how to, how to navigate this ties himself early on to Adrian Martinez. Who's okay. Like he's a, had a, you know, okay career, but like at some point you, you have to do better. Don't you, if you're going to get to a level, you have to recruit better. They're not recruiting very well. Like where it's just, there's so many like mistakes that have just piled up. Special teams. They've been a disaster. They've lost games because of special teams. And for a while they didn't have a special teams coach, like just one mistake after the other. And it, I think it's easier to say, yeah easier to say or to list the things that, is, that have gone right because the list of things that have gone wrong is the long <laughs> what I remember is uh, the um, uh, just the cockiness yeah of those guys oh, listen, when he got the gel listen. just the braggadocio I mean you've been around Frost more than I have but uh, that is not a I'm trying to think of the right way to say this that that is a I'll, I'll phrase it for you. Okay. He is not the guy who other peers want to spend time with. Right. Is that one way to put that into perspective? He's he's, he's a, not like he is a prickly, um, standoffish, uh, arrogant type of dude. Fair? And I think, Dan, you're getting at the root of why I think this is so fascinating. Oh, yeah. But what, why I think this is so fascinating is because of that attitude, right? And because he's a guy who for two years just assumed that it was going to flip a switch and everything was that it going to get back to normal. So to see him have to eat crow for two years, I think, has been a really interesting development. Um, I think uh, for his entire athletic career, I mean, going back to when he was young, it's all come easy. He's never had to face any sort of, except for a very brief time, as a young quarterback, any sort of real adversity, things have come and, and just kind of appeared for him. His coaching career was just easy peasy. Every step of the way, couldn't have planned out any better. Um, and now he's at a point 
honestly, where he's one of the more fascinating stories in coaching because if he loses again, which I think he probably will because there's no reason to expect otherwise, um, it's like Harbaugh at Michigan, but worse because, like, for a dude who bleeds for Nebraska, as he said in the last week or whatever, like, you've just cost yourself your home base. Like, you can never go home again. You know, you've, like, ruined your home for yourself because you're the failed coach in Nebraska five years, worst coach in program history. So there was like a lot of tragedy, you know, kind of Shakespearean tragedy to Scott Frost that I think uh, a lot of people take Schadenfreude with, but I think makes him uh, an interesting figure, to put it lightly. No, it's a tough thing, and this applies to any college campus and any big-time program, football, basketball, whatever. When you hire one of your most accomplished, well-known, famous, beloved athletes former athletes to be the coach of that program the odds are it's going to end poorly most most of these things do and it is a risk you know it's and i and i respect that you're willing to take that risk you know scott frost going back home um you know or penny hardaway at memphis in basketball like these are not easy jobs and the guys do it and then they don't succeed they don't win at a high, high level, and it it does sort of diminish, I think, the way they're viewed. In some ways, you'd rather just have that sort of aura around you forever. And, yeah, if Scott Frost gets fired next year, I, I don't think he would be looked at the same way by, by the Nebraska fans. Should have stayed in Florida then. Should have stayed in Orlando. You were defending national champion. Um I don't feel too much pity for him. He's got a couple million bucks in the bank. Other coaching carousel news this week. Uh, UMass has fired Walt Bell. Uh, I I guess, uh, you know, I I don't really have a lot of insight into that other than Walt Bell was a, you know, one of these sort of highly prized offensive coordinator, young guys. I mean, he was like 32, 33 years old or something like that when he got the job. Uh, all energy and slogans and awesome, uh, you know, social media stuff. And he's two and twenty-three, and they fire him. I don't really know what the future is for for UMass football or who they could get there. Um, Texas Tech hires Joey McGuire. I mean, this one is interesting to me on a couple different levels. So Joey McGuire was an assistant head coach and outside linebackers coach at Baylor. He had been there under Matt Rule. He stayed under Dave Aranda. He's leaving the staff at Baylor in the middle of the season with three weeks left in the regular season to take this job and start at Texas Tech right now. Two two things stand out about that. One, I mean, this is like incredibly disruptive for, for Baylor because – they now all of a sudden have to re-engineer their coaching staff on the fly. And, oh, by the way, they play Texas Tech in the last game of the regular season. So they've got to sort of like, you know, scrap everything and change calls. And it's going to be a hassle for, for Baylor to, to, to deal with that. Okay, fine. Um, but the other thing is, for me, this notion that Texas Tech – fires Matt Wells at the end of October, and then two weeks later they jump out in front of everybody else on the coaching carousel to get this done now is kind of a new thing that I think we're going to see more and more. It, it used to be back in the old days, and by, by the old days I mean like you know five years ago, 
that the season would end, you'd have the conference championship games, and then all the athletic directors and the agents and the search firm people, they'd all go to New York for the National Football Foundation dinner and uh, uh, Sports Business Journal does this symposium thing. And they'd all go up there and mingle in the lobbies and they'd interview coaching candidates in hotel rooms. And a lot of the coaching carousel got done there that week after the conference championship games. Now the coaching carousel is basically going to be almost over by then. Everyone wants their coach in place at the earliest possible date because of recruiting. December 15th is the early signing period, which is now the signing period in college football. Most of the players are going to be gone And these schools just are not going to wait. And I do think if you're a Texas Tech, if you're one of these mid-level jobs and you're going to hire an assistant coach, you're going to see more of them try to do it right now. We saw Georgia Southern hire Clay Helton. Uh, Of course, Clay Helton was out of a job. He had been fired at USC, so that doesn't disrupt other programs. But this is kind of the new normal, and frankly, a lot of people don't like it. Well, There's the like the feeling that we give players a hard time for that early transfer to, to keep their red shirt, and then we give coaches a pass. So I'm, I'm not in favor of that. Um, but I, I look, coaches wanted the early signing period. They argued for it. They fought for it. They got it. And now their peers are getting fired in September and October. So, I mean, be careful what you wish for. I just don't know for Texas Tech. Like, Joey McGuire seems like a good coach. I mean, he is a Texas high school legend to a degree, like up there with Chad Morris. So I understand the hire, but it seems fast. It just seems fast. And what are you going to achieve as a team in the next couple of weeks with Joey McGuire? Is it all recruiting? That's all you're going to do? If that's it, then I guess it makes sense. But um, you're ruining the – you've already ruined the final year experience for a bunch of seniors. And, and it's just not – I don't think there's any weight that puts into what this impact has on student-athletes. And I think that's – no one cares, clearly, but I think that's unfortunate. I think the way Texas Tech is looking at this is they knew pretty quickly that Sonny Dykes was not going to come. It's the it's the worst kept secret in the industry right now that Sonny Dykes is going to TCU. Now, obviously, things could fall apart, you know, late in the game, and you know, maybe you know Virginia Tech fires Justin Fuente and they make a huge play and his mind gets changed or, or whatever. Um, Things happen in these coaching searches until the ink's dry on the contract. You never really know. But right now, it is it is literally the worst kept secret in the industry. TCU and Sonny Dykes are, are in fairly advanced conversations. To, he's going to go there, assuming something crazy doesn't happen. So they know they're not getting Sonny Dykes at Texas Tech. They also know that they're not competing or they're not going to – want to get into a competition with some of these other schools that either are definitely going to be open or might be open. Uh, if for, you know, Virginia tech or Miami or whoever, and they want a guy with Texas ties. They want a guy, they, they know the stereotype or the archetype coach they're looking for. So why not just get it done? Give him extra weeks to evaluate the current roster, to talk to prospects to evaluate who they've got committed, to jump as quickly as possible in the transfer portal, all that stuff, it's just lined up better. Now, we could have a debate about whether Joey McGuire is a good hire or not. I have no idea. He's never been a coordinator, never been a head coach. He does sort of embody to me what people are looking for right now, which is energy and recruiting and connecting with kids. And 
you know, he's he knows everybody in the state. Um, all, all all that stuff is good. It's kind of you know everyone wants to find their Sam Pittman. That's kind of where where we're at right now with these jobs like Texas Tech, and they feel like Joey McGuire is is that guy. Um, you know, similar background as Jeff Trailer at UTSA. You know, another another one who could have been a tech, Texas Tech candidate who uh, signed an extension and and got him out of the way. So that that's the thinking. Whether it's right or not, I don't know. Because as I learn more year after year, evaluating what these hires are going to be or what they're going to look like five years down the road is is pretty much impossible. Yeah, I will credit McGuire for one thing. You got to want to be at Texas Tech. You got to want to be there. You know, you got to really want that job. So clearly he's committed or needs to be committed. Um, but he, you know, he wants to be in Lubbock and, and kudos to you. Not everyone really wants to be there. Even people in Lubbock sometimes don't want to be in Lubbock. Let's be honest. Well, no, I mean, look, I, I don't necessarily think this is a great way to run a program or an athletic department, but Texas Tech values their fan base, their campus values somebody being one of them, you know, quote unquote. And Tommy Tuberville was not one of them. Uh, Matt Wells was not one of them. Cliff Kingsbury was in a sense, but he was frankly a little too green and inexperienced for that job when he got it. And, you know, now he's obviously got more, um, you know, the, the leather's a little more worn in on his career. And I think he's, figured some stuff out and he's, he's done very well. But I mean, the fact that Cl- Cliff Kingsbury's turned out to be a pretty decent NFL coach couldn't win there. That tells you how hard that job is. Yeah. You got to recruit. So McGuire's got a pretty big Rolodex. Get after it. You got 40 days or whatever until signing day. So that's the story of the rest of their season, but you made a really interesting point about Baylor and that game. I had not thought about that. That is conceivably a really, really big game for Baylor. Yeah. So um, if they're playing in that game for a shot at the Big 12 championship, then that's that's a really, really interesting storyline. I would hope and I would think that Joey McGuire would sit that one out. Um, but he probably wouldn't. He is a, well, I've heard him described as a ball coach's ball coach, which makes me want to vomit. But I think if that's the case, he's going to want to uh, dig in and, and attack the Bears. Yeah, he's not going to be calling plays, but he is going to have information that will be useful to right. Texas Tech in that game. And yeah, it's a headache. There's no getting around it. Like it's a headache for Baylor that they're having to deal with this, and and also you know probably, frankly, having to sort of stave off uh, Joey McGuire trying to recruit some people from Baylor. Not not necessarily players, but like staff and all that stuff. So. That kind of transition really is is disruptive and problematic and not good for the for the players, but that's just what we're dealing with. It's it's an unintended consequence of, of this new signing period uh, situation. So yeah, that's just kind of where um, where where we are. Um, by the way, speaking of the state of Texas. I mean, I don't know how things could get any worse. We joked about Steve Sarkeesian and the monkey story with Jeff Banks last week, but then they go out and just get absolutely ransacked by Iowa State. You know, there, there's a, a a video that's that's circulating on on the internet uh, 
allegedly from the bus ride. I, I don't know. Maybe it was to the airport or something. And one of the uh, assistant coaches at Texas going off on the team. And, you know, and then, of course, the fact that a player actually like videotaped that and put it on social media or shared it with somebody probably suggests that uh, something uh, unto itself that's problematic about the culture there. Uh, but I, I think at this point, like, you're not going to fire Steve Sarkeesian because for a lot of reasons, including just the cost and all that stuff. But if I am Texas right now, I've got some serious buyer's remorse. And by the way, for a lot of us who have memories longer than about 10 minutes, it wasn't hard to see this coming. Like, Steve Sarkeesian was okay at Washington. He was not good at USC. He's never been a good head coach. All of this shine on Steve Sarkeesian came from being the offensive coordinator at Alabama, where everybody on your offense is a five-star NFL prospect. Oh, wow. What a shock that that would be a good offense. Um, I, I If They've I owned stock in Steve Sarkeesian, I'd be selling. That's bad. They haven't lost four in a row since 2010. Yeah. It's bad. It's bad, and it's bad because it's not just that they're blowing leads like they did those first three losses. They got their asses kicked by Iowa State. And the difference between those two teams, to quote P.J. Fleck, was culture versus talent. And culture beat the hell out of talent at UT. And it says to me that Sark can recruit all the five-star classes he wants, all the top ten classes he wants, but there consistently and continues to be something wrong in the core at the base level of Texas football. And that's his biggest hurdle because you haven't seen any improvement in that regard in year one. It's not an immediate fix, but I thought that you'd see a more aggressive, consistent, uh, cohesive kind of play, just style of play, style of energy, style of aggressiveness, and you're not seeing it. So I hate to say this is like a three-year rebuild because that's ridiculous. There's a ridiculous amount of talent on the roster. But clearly, this team is going to luck out to go six and six at best, seven and five. And um, you go six and six, seven and five, year one at Texas, you're in Tom Herman, Charlie Strong territory. So I think there's going to be an interesting offseason for Sark. Here's the problem is when you talk about a three year rebuild, that's all fine and dandy. But then, like, when you get to year three, all of a sudden, you're now in the SEC. And that's going to be like another level of rebuild. And I don't necessarily think it's going to be that easy. And this applies to Oklahoma as well, though they're in a much different category. But I think it's a lot harder for Texas to go out there and say to to recruits right now, yeah, come to us. You'll be playing in the SEC when you're a senior or you know when you're a junior. Like that doesn't mm-hmm. – I don't think that sells. Uh, yeah, come to the SEC and, and let's lose to Arkansas again when you're a junior or a senior. That does not sound fun to me personally. But again, I think that's going to be an issue for Sark's successor more than for Sark himself. All right, let's get into uh, this week's games. It is a more robust uh, slate of of matchups than than we had last week, uh, which certainly provided its own drama in a way. But uh, I do think we have some meaningful games this weekend. Let's start... Uh, with the Big Ten, where you know you, you've got Michigan going to Penn State, a very very big game for Michigan. They're not out of this thing yet. I mean, 
they've got the loss to, to Michigan State, but clearly the committee values what what Michigan's done. If they go and win at Penn State, it's a you know a a quality win, uh, but they've still got like the way Ohio State has looked this season. I would. It, right now, give Michigan a decent shot of winning that football game. So, to me, Michigan's still got everything to play for here. Yeah, there's a lot on the line for Michigan. You know, I think that even if you look, and we'll talk, I don't want to talk about the rankings again, but you're looking at a team that um, is going to be in the mix for for it all, you know, and in the mix to re- be right there. And clearly, they're a top four team at, at 12 and 1. And I think they'll be in the mix going into the Saturday, you know, first Sunday of December, no matter what. I mean, you know, I, I just. I think Nebraska did some things to Ohio State that were interesting, that are repeatable. I think Michigan will look at that game and see things certainly on defense that they can do. Um, but these last three, four weeks in the Big Ten, it's the conference to watch up until Sunday, December, or Saturday, December 3rd, when you got to watch Georgia, Alabama. I think the Big Ten is the league to watch down the stretch because obviously we can ignore the ACC and we can only focus on Oregon out in Pac-12. Yeah, thanks for reminding me, by the way. i got to get my uh, press credentials to the SEC championship game. That, that is definitely one I'm going to uh, try to be at. Um, yeah, when you look at Ohio State, you know, they have dominated the bad teams. But when you look at the quality competition they've played, their offense has scored 28 against Oregon, uh, 33 against Penn State, 26 against Nebraska. You know, It is not this laser show offense that we saw – with uh, Justin Fields last season. And you look at this stretch coming up. I mean, Ohio State, they've got Purdue this weekend, Michigan State next week, both at home, and then they finish in the big house. That is a season-defining finish for the Buckeyes. What are the odds they go 3-0 in those games? I think it's above 50%, but it's like adding Wisconsin in game four, potentially. Yeah. You know, I think this is a brutal stretch of games, you know, a brutal stretch. I think Wisconsin, it strikes me as the kind of team that even if Ohio State survives that game, they're going to get the hell beat out of them by the Badgers. So, you know, I think we can put any of those three teams in there, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State. Whichever team runs this gauntlet will have earned a top four seed with room to spare. And I think that you'll even see them at number two. Um, in the final standings with SEC champ one, SEC champ loser, if it's Georgia three, um, and then Big Ten teams sandwiched in the middle. I, the big question for me, Dan, as we as if you want to look ahead to January or late December, do you think the Big Ten champ is more prepared this year because of this gauntlet for a national championship? You know, I, like, are you more prepared to face Georgia in the semis if you're Ohio State than you have been um, simply because you've had to play a tougher caliber of opponent? I don't know if that's true or not because we don't have like an outside metric to tell us that the Big Ten's actually really good. But it's an interesting thought. I mean, we talk about like in baseball teams that get hot late, you know, win the wild card game, and all of a sudden they're rolling into the postseason. Maybe Ohio State will be rolling into the postseason more than before, and that yields a better result, you know, in the semis and the championship. We'll see, but I think it's an interesting thought. Yeah, it, it, it could be. You know, I, I think Ohio State – if they play at their absolute ceiling, could hang with Georgia and beat Alabama. You know, I, I think that's that's where I land on this. But how often have we seen Ohio State ceiling? I actually don't think we've seen it at all against quality competition. And you get to this point in the season, you haven't seen it, you wonder if you're going to see it. So there, there are some issues. And, and look, I mean, Purdue – 
is coming off a win over Michigan State. They dominated Iowa a few weeks back. It's a quality Purdue team. And mm-hmm. Ohio State, you know, this is one of those games where they, they better be all in mentally uh, because I think this is the kind of game that, that very clearly in his coaching career, Jeff Brom has been able to get his team ready for. Yeah, this is a worrisome game. I think Ohio State is, is ready for Purdue. I don't think they're going to get caught napping, but um, if they win this game, Purdue, uh, I mean, Jeff Brom, just get on a flight, go down to Gainesville, start knocking on some doors, you know? Just see, just check the tenor of the place. Go on so, Zillow and see are, what apartment houses look like. So what you're suggesting here is that Florida should fire Dan Mullen and hire Jeff Brom? Absolutely. Wow. I'm going to just say it flat out. You said it for me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I agree. I'm, I, I, that's what I'm saying. I think he would be an upgrade. I think he'd be an offensive upgrade immediately. So if they they have to win this game, though, if they lose this game, I reserve the right to just just erase everything I just said and be a Dan Mullen supporter. But if they win this game, I think that that should be the move. It should be a no-brainer move if they win this game. They'll wow. knock off three juggernauts in a, in a 28-day span. I, I, Jeff Brom's a really good coach. You know He's me, a really I'm just good coach. Say what I feel. Yeah. Oh, that's that's yeah. that's a take. I like it. Um. All right, let's go to the Big Twelve, where we've got Oklahoma at Baylor. Oklahoma's coming off a we don't call it a bye week, right? Bye week is the wrong terminology. I've been told. What what do we call it? A um, open I'm date. I'm calling it a bye week until I die, Dan. I call it a. No, no, it's a bye week. I don't care. I don't want to hear this stuff. Again, hats at the door, bye weeks, go to prison, go away, <laughs> quit your job, go live on an island somewhere. Stop I, telling me this. I can't say bye weeks now. I've been saying bye weeks for 35 years. That's all I've said is bye week. I mean, give me a break. Stop gatekeeping bye week. I want to say bye week. I'm going to say bye week. That's Damn it. cancel That's culture it, trying to cancel bye weeks. The show's over. Bye week, from what I'm it's told, bye. Like idle week, we're going to say idle week. By refers to a tournament. Like if you're the top seed in a tournament, you have a first round by. This is an open date. That's what I've been told. I don't agree with it, but so be it. Back to the original point. Oklahoma is coming off an open date, and now their season really starts. The committee and most of America has not been in love with Oklahoma. A very scratchy 9-0. and Honestly, the game they played against Kansas a few weeks back was – one of the more embarrassing efforts for a highly ranked team all season. They got right a little bit against Texas Tech. I have to think that if Lincoln Riley is as good of a coach as I believe him to be, that Oklahoma will come off of this open date and play really, really well against Baylor, and then you get Iowa State, and then you finish with Bedlam. Nobody really knows because Oklahoma's been a trick-or-treat type team. But I think we'll figure out pretty quickly on Saturday whether they are whether their compass is pointing toward the playoff or whether they're just going to kind of peter out and be a pretty good team. Yeah, you asked whether Ohio State, what the odds were of them running the table. I gave it like above 50%. I, I'd say it's less than 50% for OU just based off what we've seen. But like you said, an off week, um, an idle week, a time to recharge – it's the first time they've had that since Caleb Williams took the job. What does that mean? I don't think it means they're going to reinvent the wheel on offense, but maybe they needed a week to catch their breath and, and you know, exhale after what was a pretty stressful month for the program. So I'm hopeful for OU's sake that they come out and they play the way that we expected them to play in August. 
But this is a tough run. I mean, we know what Iowa State's about. I'm not quite sold on Baylor. I mean, I think they're a nice story. I, I don't think they're that good. They're, they're overachieving. Yeah. But you're looking at Iowa Yeah, and that's great. It's great for Aranda. I mean, he, he after a down year, he's justified the hire. That's great for him. But I think Iowa State, Bedlam, and then I think Bedlam again is how it will turn out, um, is going to be um, really, really tough on OU. And certainly, like you said, if it's the team that, not just Kansas, but it's a team that you know played West Virginia and played Nebraska, if it's that team, there's no way they're running the table. There's just no way. And I don't know if uh, a 12-1 Oklahoma team is going to get into the top no, four based no. off how we expect other things to unfold across the country. Yeah, no, they, they will. They will not. Uh, they 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 have to run it in the SEC this week. Let me ask you this, Paul: How much of a danger spot is Georgia in going to Tennessee on Saturday? I don't think they're in that much danger, but I'm kind of like liking the idea that Tennessee is going to put some stress on this defense. I mean, Tennessee scored 45 points in. 13, 15, 16 minutes of possession against Kentucky. And Kentucky's not a slouch program or a slouch defense. So I think Tennessee can do some things on offense and uh, maybe make Georgia have to respond, certainly early. Like maybe Tennessee can put up 17 points in the first half and make this into a game. I don't think they're in the danger zone, but you look at their schedule uh, before Alabama, this is certainly the game that of those I think could get away. Um, I think Georgia obviously wins, but... Josh Heupel, man, he's done a really nice job. Even if he lucked into a QB situation because Milton got hurt, I think he's done a really nice job. Yeah, if you talk to people around Georgia, the one thing that they harp on constantly is is actually not quarterback, uh, which is a thing we've discussed here before with Stetson Bennett, but it's it's the secondary. It's the defensive backfield. They they feel like, you know, at Georgia that that's where they're a little bit vulnerable. And you know what Tennessee is going to do. Tennessee is going to attack you vertically. They're going to test your guys in one-on-one coverage. They're going to find matchups. And look, I, I don't expect Georgia to lose the football game by any stretch of the imagination. But I can guarantee you there's some stress this week in in those coaching offices watching the film of Tennessee's offense and how they're going to defend it. And, yeah, all credit to Josh Heupel for what he's done. I think over time, you know, this is his first run through the league. I'm sure over time that that people will figure out ways to, to defend them a little bit. But uh, right now, Georgia hadn't seen anything like that yet. It could be an issue. It really could. Yeah, I agree. It's a definitely a game worth monitoring. Um, it's a day uh, and, a, and a game for Georgia that it's not like a telling game. It's not like you, you're not already sold on Georgia. But, yeah, I mean, Tennessee could reveal some things about Georgia that a team like Ohio State, which has an, an absurd amount of weapons out wide, that maybe the Ohio State could exploit. So it's a, uh, it's a telling game for the Bulldogs' defense, which we've anointed the best in the last whatever number of years in college football. But, yeah, you're right. I don't think they faced very many teams, if any, that could do to them what Tennessee is capable of doing. Moving uh, over to another SEC matchup with Texas A&M going to Ole Miss. And one of the things people are trying to bring up as we get to the end of the season is is the possibility that Texas A&M could win the SEC title. 
it is not out of the question mathematically. They would need Alabama to lose on the road at Auburn, which, frankly, based on what we've seen, not a, a terribly uh, outlandish idea. So if A&M right. and Alabama both have two conference losses, A&M would win the division based on the head-to-head. Um, and they've got to go to Ole Miss. They finish at LSU. Neither of those games are going to be a cakewalk. I, I just, like, in my gut and deep in my bones, I don't feel like Texas A&M is going to be the first two-loss team to make the college football playoff. I just think the – I think there's too many obstacles, and, and I actually don't think Alabama is going to lose again in the regular season. Uh, but they, they have uh, – They've been impressive. You know, they, they've done a good job with what they have. Uh, the quarterback situation has, has been far from ideal at Texas A&M, and yet uh, they, they've been able to stay afloat. So all credit to Jimbo. Yeah, I think they're going to end up being this year's version of Oklahoma in 2020. That was the team with two losses that everyone said, hey, if we picked a playoff and it was just teams that yeah. we thought they'd win the national championship at this point, OU would get in. But they had two losses. So A&M is going to be 10-2 and two in my mind. I think they're going to beat Ole Miss. I think they'll get the win out. And they'll finish like 6th or 7th in the playoff rankings. And and that's unfortunate, but, you know, don't, you know, lose to Arkansas or whoever they lost to. Um, so uh, th- I think that's a story for A&M. It's not a disappointing season, I think, by any means. I know they wanted to win a national championship, but given injuries, given how poorly they played in September, I think to go 10-2 and two, with the recruiting class they've got bringing in and the recruiting that is going ahead towards 2023, I think it keeps them on track um, to eventually win a national championship. And, and count me among those people, and it probably is a very small group, that thinks at some point um, before I die, Texas A&M will win a national championship. Wow. another You're just full of the hot takes today. <laughs> before I die. Um, well, hopefully that's not for a long time. Any point from today. Yeah. Um, for or in 60 years, potentially. I don't, I'm not that healthy, but um, yeah, I think they will win a national championship before I expire Okay, um, off the face of the planet. The Pac-12, uh, I'm, I'm just skipping over the ACC. I, I don't want to talk about the ACC, honestly, anymore this season. Who cares? Season. We don't have to talk about it. Pac- Pac-12, Oregon's hosting Washington State. You know, another game that you look at and you kind of go, hmm, because... Frankly, Oregon is, to me, the most frustrating watch in college football. Every week I turn them on, and it just feels like they're messing around. They're screwing around. They're winning, and they kind of have these teams like halfway at arm's distance, but they're not putting the pedal down and finishing the job the way championship teams should. If you do that every week, a team like Washington State might jump up and get you. You know, and I just feel like we'll see. We'll see. It's a it's a ten thirty game. We're all going to be struggling to stay awake ten thirty East Coast to to watch that. But if it's uh, if it's fourteen to ten at halftime, I would not be surprised. Yeah, Oregon is like a guy who's driving real fast, playing with the radio, and you're in the passenger seat, and you're like, "Will you please focus on the road? <laughs> I got the radio. Just please focus on the road." You're right. They always feel like they're distracted. Um, they're always distracted. Like this Washington game um, that we watched on Saturday night because of the idea that Oregon could lose. I hate watch that game. I hated myself for watching it. I hated watching these two teams. 
Um, I hated everything about it. And Oregon just doesn't doesn't allow me to have fun. I don't have fun when I watch Oregon. And I think that's a disappointment. I think that is an issue. When you talk at the end of the line, we do the eye test and the blah, 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 and all the other garbage and nonsense. The fact that Oregon doesn't blow anybody out and is always sloppy and always looks like they've got other things on their mind is an issue, not just because they'll lose to Washington State, but because they won't look the part of a top 14. So we're waiting. We're like, come on, come on, it's time. Go, go, let's let's go. Come on, pick it up. And they're not doing it. So my patience is at 0.1% for Oregon at this point, and I hope they lose to Washington State so we can just kind of like the ACC. Goodbye. Go away. (laughs) Goodbye. See you next year. No, I mean, you're watching that game against Washington last week, and it's just they leave the door open, leave the door open, leave the door open. And Washington wasn't good enough to walk through. And frankly, Jimmy Lake punts the ball, you know, when he shouldn't punt it, when they saw when they, oh, with two, you know, a minute and 40 or whatever it was and two timeouts, knowing the game's over. If you punt, I mean, just stupid, but be that as it may, like that's just kind of part of their character is, is they leave, they leave the door open for bad things to happen. And if you do that enough during the course of a college football season, at some point, a bad thing will happen. So that's where we are. Any other game uh, going to be high on your agenda this weekend? You know, it's it's a weeknight game, and I know that this is Wednesday, and it's going to be played on Thursday. I like the uh, the Pitt-UNC matchup on a Thursday night. It's a great QB matchup. I think there's going to be a lot of NFL interest in seeing Kenny Pickett and Sam Howell. It's very unimportant, except for the idea that Pitt with a win is really going to put a stranglehold on the Coastal. Um, not that they're already kind of firmly in control of that thing, but with a win, they're in terrific shape to uh, to play for an ACC title. Uh, Kenny Pickett to play his way into a Heisman invite to Manhattan. And uh, this kind of year for Pitt feels like a long time coming, coming under Narduzzi. But, um, yeah, it's a weeknight game, but still I advise, and I hope people will check that out. Okay, well, I think that's where we'll wrap it for this week. Plenty more ahead in the coming weeks as we get to the end of the regular season. A lot of big games and a lot of news to cover in the future. Please uh, download and subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Give us a good rating if you don't mind. It certainly helps get the word out about the college football fix. And subscribe to USA Today and USA Today Sports Plus uh, online. Certainly a great place to get all of your sports coverage. For Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Walken. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Walken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.